Welcome to another very special edition of Ignite Radio Live, broadcasting over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio. Pope St. John Paul II's biographer, George Weigel, said that the theology of the body is a time bomb set to go off sometime this century. Clearly, God's beautiful and powerful design of the sexual urge embedded in our humanity is very much alive, but is it well? In this presentation, Image Trinity's founder and CEO, Greg Schleter, invites us to consider what if all that power, energy, and drive embedded in us was transformed back to its purpose? What if this God-given compass whose due north is God was recalibrated back to him? We would be a society of saints. The following presentation, The Sexual Urge and Transformation of the World, took place at a Theology on Tap. It's a compelling presentation of God's design and purpose for our sexuality, a means for our deepest longing for intimacy with Him, and how we might see it recalibrated for our own transformation and the transformation of the world. This is the core mission of Image Trinity, that we understand our ultimate drama, our ultimate identity and mission, to make God, who is love, known. Find out more about this personal, family, parish, and planet-transforming movement at MassImpact.us. I am glad somebody had the foresight that if you're going to bring a 49-year-old dude to come in and talk about sex, that you need to have beer on hand. So very wise of you all, you know. So if I see some of you ordering scotch, I'm going to kind of take a cue. So one day, I was just overwhelmed with the joy of life. And I just said to my mom, you know, I said, you know, Mom, thanks so much for giving me the gift of life. And without thinking about it, my very Victorian mom responded, it was our pleasure. (laughs) Indeed, it was. So... Uh, We all laughed about that, and I think her response really kind of typifies the message tonight, which is really that the fabric of our nature, the fabric of God's design for us, has a lot to do with God himself, has to do with our deepest aspirations. So let's begin in prayer tonight. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, the deepest truth is that you fashioned us for yourself. You who are a community of persons pouring yourselves out constantly, so deeply, so intimately that you are one God, fashioned us, our very nature, to do the same in relationship with one another, to be instruments of that grace, Lord God, literally with the identity and mission to make love known. Draw us deeper into your heart, God, and help us to be occasions of helping others to more fully discover their godlike nature. We ask this in your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, six boys. At an early age, I just as a boy missed having a girl around. I just, you know, I, I kind of became aware of my puzzle piece, you know, that I am as a guy. I love like sports, we're playing sports all the time and that whole thing. But you know, quite frankly, a big motivator for me in going to school is that there were girls. You know, you might have even called me girl crazy. You know, my first girlfriend was in second grade. You know, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. And that whole thing was going on. And um, I think it really made me aware that, that in discovery of the beauty, the feminine beauty that was a complement to mine, 
to some extent, without even theology or scripture, I was just aware in my nature, in my spirit, in my emotions, in the way that I thought, that, I, that there was something completing me, that there was something more than just me. And um, I think Genesis 1.27 really defines tonight, and it defines um, this ultimate drama that we're going to discover tonight more fully that we share. Genesis 1.27, in his image he made them, male and female he made them. Not just male, not just female, but as a complementarity. And that was, uh, I think, an experience I had as a young man, as a young boy, I should say. So I don't know much about any of you here in this room tonight, but I can have absolute confidence of two things about each one of you. One is that your deepest longing is to be loved more than anything else. And the second thing is that you desire to love. These are the the deepest longings of your heart. And we're going to find tonight that this idea of God making man and woman in in his image complementarily, that woven into our nature, that this deepest longing that he's embedded in us is ultimately for him through one another. That it's for God, literally through one another. And the reality is, let's face it, your deepest longing to love and be loved at some point in your life has been betrayed at this age. You guys are in your 20s maybe 30s, at some point, whether it was a parent, whether it was a friend, a child, classmate, a neighbor, at some point, um, our love has been betrayed, which is to say that we had hope that they would love us unconditionally, and they failed to do that, and that affected us deeply. It affected us on that primal level of that deepest longing that we have for God. And so what happens when our love is betrayed especially when it's fresh and when it's new, well, Pink Floyd kind of worded it well, all in all, it's another brick in the wall. I don't know if you're familiar with that, classical rock, kind of back to the 70s and 80s, a whole album built on this idea. But just we build up these bricks, brick by brick, each betrayal. And let's keep it real. Sometimes, often, we've betrayed others, not even knowing it. Why? Because we're not God, we're not perfect. So that longing that you have for God and that I have for God We cannot fulfill, we cannot fulfill that full, unconditional presence that God can be to us. And so when we are let down, we build a wall, and let's just say that we deprive ourselves of the love that God wants to pour into our lives. And if he's not pouring that love into our lives because of our resistance, because of the wounds and the junk, the walls, we're not able to be that grace of love to others. So I would say I certainly at an early age became aware of that experience also, Um, both, again, my uh, betraying others' love and others betraying my love in small ways and, and even increasingly throughout life, bigger ways. And I'll say another factor that um, challenged my awareness of my identity as being participating in God who is love was the monster in the woods. I know it sounds kind of scary, but you know, I like these C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and I'm getting acquainted with a guy named George MacDonald, uh, who actually Tolkien loved. Um, the Goblin and the Princess was one of his favorite books. I encourage you to read it because it's got a great cosmology like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. But you find in books like this, um, you know, monsters and goblins and dangers and threats. And I discovered my greatest, most significant threat in the woods in about fourth grade. I was with some buddies. I lived in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. We had a woods by our house and just shooting BB guns and hanging out in the backwoods came upon a, um, a bag. And inside of this bag was a stack of pornography. And in fourth grade, it was just bizarre. It was just intriguing. I didn't have the development to understand what this was all about. 
It spoke to me in some kind of mystical way as a confusion of something profoundly good and sublime, very perverted. If it wasn't profoundly good, I wouldn't have been interested. Like if I had just opened it up and it was sledge, I would have just let it go. But there was something that gripped me that was truly good and beautiful, but perverted. And I distinctly remember that experience in fourth grade as each, maybe every year or so, my buddies and I knew where this stack was. And as we got older, this monster um, with this, let's face it, um, a very commanding um, gravity on us um, began to pollute or contaminate and, and cause some of this natural wiring for God to be affected. Now, we weren't in front of it, camped out in front of it, but the periodic moments was enough to just kind of, they call it the latency period when you're a young child at a certain age, up through seventh, eighth grade, to experience these things um, can have a very drastic effect on the way that we're wired. Again, we're going to discover for God. So whether it be me betraying others or others betraying me or the monsters in our lives that exist beyond our power that want to pervert a very good thing and the walls that we build besides it, if we didn't have this stuff, we wouldn't be a mess. And each of us here, to some extent, are a mess. But without a mess, we wouldn't need the Messiah. Without being sinners, we wouldn't need a Savior. It would be superfluous. And I do believe it's worth reflecting. It's not the point of tonight. But if we connected with the degree to which we're a mess, the degree to which we're sinners, we'd be all the more hungry for our Savior and the power that he gives us through our church and through our faith. In Jesus Christ, we discover our identity and mission, our very fabric to image the Trinity, to make love known. Chapter 2. The urge is alive and well in the world today. And when I speak of the urge, you're going to discover the sexual urge that John Paul speaks of originally in Love and Responsibility. Carol Wojtyla wrote in uh, 1960, it is a good God design. We're going to discover that more later. I want to just convey the degree to which this God designed good quality is evidenced around us in the negative ways. First of all, most studies show that on average, kids spend seven plus hours of discretionary time with electronic media, seven plus hours. So it's a big question that is a gauge of the degree to which we're disciples of Jesus. How do we spend our time? Is it devoted to things of God or to other things? So here we go. 93% of boys and 63% of girls view porn before age 18. The average age one views porn, 11. The largest consumer group of porn, that age is 12 to 17. 64% of college men and 18% of college women spend time online for internet sex every week. I'll repeat that, 64% of college men, 18% of college women spend time online for internet sex every week. Now some of us here might think, well, they're not Christian or they're not believers or they're not faithful. I was a seminarian once and I've been blessed to know a lot of priests in my life and I've heard their challenges and their struggles and I can tell you that they are every bit as much challenged as those who are not Christian. In fact, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. So what about TV? Two out of every three shows on TV include sexual content. Of those instances of sexual intercourse, depicted or strongly implied, 
Only half are among couples who had an established relationship with one another. So they're not even saying marriage. Only half are those who just even kind of knew each other and had an established relationship. So all of the studies reveal that there's a direct connection between what we're exposed to and how we act upon what we're exposed to. It influences the way we think at our very core. How does this translate into behavior? This is just unbelievable to me. The average number of sex partners is 9.7 for college men, 7.1 for college women. 9.7 sex partners on average, some are more, some are less, for college men, 7.1 for college women. The percent of marriages now where one or both spouses admit to infidelity, either physical or emotional, is 41%. Two-thirds, this is crazy, two-thirds of college students have been in a friends with benefits relationship. What are they drawn to? The lack of commitment is the main advantage. Two-thirds of college students. Of course, this does not uh, reveal the tragic realities of the implications for being married down the road, staying married in a relationship, because we know, know the most potent sex organ is your, is your mind, the capacity to replay those scenes in your mind again and again and again. In fact, my wife, one of a group of 10 very beautiful Catholic women, were talking about this subject and the struggles they were having in their marriages with godly Catholic men. And she found herself kind of the odd man out because she was very blessed to live purely. We were uh, virgin the night we were married uh, up till that point. And um, every single one of them spoke of the profound challenges to their marriages as a result of their behavior and relationships prior to marriage. 15 to 24 year olds account for nearly half of all STDs diagnosed every year, which we know are not in, inconsequential. Chapter three, our bodies are hardwired for the sexual urge. There was an article in the Business News Daily about five years ago, a lot of stats. The title was why sex sells more than ever. Quote, sex sells because it attracts attention. People are hardwired to notice sexually relevant information. So ads are sexual and se with sexual content get noticed. Some young men actually think Axe body spray will drive women crazy, he said. Our bodies, I haven't even talked religion yet. I haven't talked theology. Just our bodies, we're describing stats, we're describing behavior. We're evaluating the degree to which the sexual urge is pervasive in our lives. We're talking about the, some of the consequences. We'll get a little more to that later. Every cell of our bodies, if your body has 46 chromosomes, except a sperm and an egg, which are complementary, custom designed to accomplish a result. Again, complementarity, design. Of late, I've been in some conversations strictly philosophical, not religious, not spiritual, about the gender question, about uh, same-sex relationships and such. And I'm going to summarize it this way, because I don't think it can be argued with. No argument surpasses the one the body has already made. Same gender bodies do not fit together. And number two, engagement of their sexual processes cannot accomplish what they were undeniably designed to accomplish. So with that presentation that is strictly logical, scientific, physiological, biological, you can only go in one of two directions. You can either say, you know, okay, this is important, this matters, this is, is somewhat of a design that I did not create. This is, shall we say, normal or natural. 
or I'm going to disregard normal and natural. And if you make that move of saying normal and natural don't matter, well, then you've got to accept it is unnatural or not normal. If I were to say to you, how normal would it be for you to chew this food you're going to chew right now just for the pleasure, and excuse me, Chad's going to say, I'm going to go throw up the food. I just like chewing it. It's, it's pleasurable for me. You would know, say, that's really weird, Chad. You know, you go, you go for that. But there's not a single person, whether they're a believer or a non-believer, who's not going to say that is not natural, that is not the intended purpose of eating and chewing and that sort of thing. Feel free to go ahead and eat. Don't wait for me. You don't mind being a subject of my, of my ridicule and funness. Illustrating. All right. Clearly, we would regard that as not normal. So I see the analogy, obviously, with our sexual processes also. Not meant just for the pleasure, it's meant for an end in mind. Whether it works or not, that's the design, undeniable. If you saw a child in a doctor's office taking two same-shaped pieces and trying to force them together, can you name a single parent or teacher who would not say, uh, those don't work together, let me kind of help you. You wouldn't say, oh, you're being a bigot, you're being intolerant, you're being discriminatory. You would just say, scientifically, I'm just trying to help you understand there's an order here and there's a design, and this is not normal, trying to fit these same-shaped puzzle pieces together. If I were to ask you what the function is, if I said ear, if I said eye, if I said lungs, if I said liver, say it to an audience, whether religious or non-religious, they're all going to give the same answer. So if I gave five, six, seven terms, but then I said genitals, they're not going to say the purpose of genitals, but Christopher West gives this really, he uses this example, and he really kind of was helpful to me in using the word gen, because you see it at least in these words, and the meaning that underlies each of these words, gen assists, gen etols, gender, for what purpose, generation, pretty cool, huh? Chapter four, the anatomy of the sexual urge which is somewhat interchangeable with eros. So now let's try to understand this. We get the physiology, we get that we're hardwired for it, we get that it's alive and well in culture around us, we get that it drives people, whether they're Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, it is a driving force that, that this longing desire that each of us have, around us we see it expressed very prominently in media, in lives, in behavior, in sexual activity. So now let's go a little deeper and try to understand it. So John Paul II distinguishes from an instinct versus an urge. In the first chapter of his book, Love and Responsibility, he addresses this, and he prefers to call it an urge over an instinct because an instinct is merely a reflexive mode of action. It's like sneezing or a doctor hammering you know, your knee and you know, kind of responds. We don't have control over it, it happens automatically. The sexual urge is not something that is reflexive, not something that uh, we are powerless over. Since man, however, is a being who is by nature capable of rising above instinct in his actions and can do so in the ex uh, sexual sphere as well as elsewhere, it is far better to speak of the sexual urge. So I believe that here is a culture dividing line worth us thinking about tonight. What are the implications if we regard this God-given design, this deep longing, this sexual wiring that he's given us, what are the implications if we regard it as an instinct versus an urge? First of all, how does it seem we do regard it? It seems to me today that uh, politics and, and society and people have sort of said, we are powerless over it. Therefore, we need to make it a right. Therefore, we need to give it a, 
a legal status and a social status. And not only that, we should pay for the consequences of it. That seems to me the logic of an instinct conception of our sexuality. However, if we regard it as something that we have mastery over, then suddenly it becomes something that we ought to expect like any other urge, running the guy over who, you know, on the road who flipped us off or whatever it may be. You know, we have control and we don't make excuses for running the guy off the road any more than we do for somebody's behavior over their sexuality. So I believe this is a huge dividing line. So let's consider, though, the consequences of a world that perhaps regards the sexual urge as an instinct. What are the real consequences? 68% of divorce cases involved one party meeting a new lover over the internet. 68% of divorce cases. 70% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. At least 50% of sexually active men and women will have a genital HPV infection at some point in their lives. 50% of sexually active men. Here's a pretty significant thing that we don't often think about, though, and I, I really invite you to think about this, that the sexualized culture is creating mental health issues. There's an article by a guy named Daryl Robertson. I'm going to kind of read through some of this. It's reported in the American Psychological Association, a report released called The Sexualization of Girls. They made a case, so understand this is not some document out of the Vatican. This isn't bishops. This is the American Psychological Association. They made a case that the onslaught of sexualized images in media and pop culture has created a mental health crisis evidenced by the increased levels of de depression and low self-esteem and eating disorders in young girls. The message that being yourself is never good enough fuels advertisers, get this, who make money on the self-doubt of women. Media wants to make women feel insecure. Why? Because if you're insecure, if I buy this product, I'll be good enough. If I buy this, these clothes, I'll be good enough. I know as a young husband, the challenge my wife faced in uh, coming from a very beautiful formation, one of 12 kids, beautiful story about her, Catholic family, mom died on the way to the March for Life when she was only five years old. So they really were simple and humble and a holy family before the internet thing came in. So even somebody like her, by God's grace, who persevered up till marriage uh, with me, you know, being virgins to the night of our marriage, um, even her discussed the challenges she felt, the monsters, I might say, through the media and through the world around her, of needing to appear a certain way or act a certain way. That's what we're talking about here. So this guy's documentary, Daryl Roberts, questions the highly sexualized media we consume and how it affects our youth. But how deeply does it harm the young girls growing up with this imagery all around them? Some stats. 95% of those with eating disorders are between the ages of 12 and 25. Approximately 91% of women are unhappy with their bodies. There's been a lot of new studies in the last 15 years um, from neurologists, neuroscientists, that talk about the bonding that takes place, what happens in our brains chemically in the sexual process to bond us with other people. Dana Gresh describes the emotional dangers young people face when they lead promiscuous lifestyles. She talks about the limbic system and how it connects our experiences to this powerful drive, this drive of the sexual urge. While many young people claim they can have sex without feeling a personal connection to their partner, 
Gresh says that it's impossible. This hookup culture, as she calls it, ignores the inherent connection sex creates and as a result can actually lead to emptiness and pain. Here's where the hookup culture starts to be a problem. What happens if you get caught up in the friends with benefits game and have multiple partners? What happens when the partners you've become addicted and bonded to are gone? You experience withdrawal symptoms in the emotional center of the brain. 25% of sexually active teenage girls experience uh, depression compared to 7.7% of those who abstain. 25% experience depression of those who are sexually active versus 7% of those who abstain. And the suicide rate is much higher among sexually active girls. You know, I really would give you the metaphor, that metallic tape right here. We're going to put this on his arm and kind of rub it in, use a blow dryer, kind of let it stick in there really good, kind of let it dry for another 10 minutes. And you ready for this, buddy? Yep. What do you see here? I mean, I took off Matt's arm. I mean, you see, you know, half his arm clinging to this piece of tape, right? And what happens every time you put this tape back down? Maybe another arm? It becomes less and less adhesive. It diminishes every single time. It takes part of you with it. And that is the design of our brains with the chemicals in our brains. The sexual processes are all about between a man and a woman that are intended to keep somebody bonded so that when that tape comes down the first time, imagine two pieces of duct tape coming together and pulling those apart. Every single time after that, you bring them together, nine on average for men, apparently in college, and seven for women. How adhesive is that tape after the second time, third time, fifth time, seventh time? You get the idea. Didn't even mention religion yet. But that is the nature of God's design for the body. John Paul II said this, Pope St. John Paul II, the sexual urge is a property of the whole of human existence and not just one of its spheres or functions. It is a natural drive born in all human beings, a vector of aspiration along which their whole existence develops and perfects itself from within. What's he saying? The realm of the sexual urge is not just what one does with 5% of their body 5% of the time. It has to do with the totality of our lives. He also says, Pope St. John Paul, if we stop at lust, we do not experience that fullness of eros which implies the upward impulse of the human spirit towards what is true, good, and beautiful, so that what is erotic also becomes true, good, and beautiful. He's stating here that this drive, this longing, this desire, this sexual urge is designed for something greater. It's designed for something beyond itself. will not be ended even by its physical fulfillment. It's part of a human aspiration to something greater, which we're going to now explore chapter 5, the design and purpose of the urge is simply this, intimacy with God. When I lived at Steubenville, I was living, uh, blessed to live in a home with a guy named Ted Sri and Tim Gray, really some dynamic, young evangelistic theologians out in Denver running the St. Augustine Institute. Jim Beckman was also there at the time. We lived together and we lived across the street from Scott Hahn, blessed to have some private Bible studies with Scott Hahn. And I distinctly remember Scott Hahn describing the relations of the Trinity. And um, he described them, Father, Son, and Holy, and Holy Spirit, that the nature of them is this, he'd use these big words, perichoresis and circumincession. These words literally mean ecstatic love dance. This is the nature of these three persons constantly, mutually pouring themselves out into the life of another. 
And then he explained that that is the nature of our humanity. We are of the fabric of that which is love, mutual self-giving love, the fabric of the Trinity meant to pour ourselves out for the good of another. Marriage is an icon of the Trinity, and all of our humanity is designed to, um, to do this, to fulfill this identity and mission, to make God who is love known, to pour ourselves out for the good of another. So let me simply state this, one line from my study of John Paul II on the sexual urge. The sexual urge is an urge to a completion that can only be found in God. I'll repeat it again. And I would say this to young kids when we'd give big retreats and rallies or whatever. And you know, I'd say, you guys know that quality in you. You want to get it on kind of thing. And the guys all laugh and clap. And I'm like, yeah, God designed that for you. He put it in you. He embedded it in your spirit. And you, know, you should never be ashamed of it. You should never think of it as something dirty. But I want you to understand what that's all about. I want you to understand why that is in you. Because you could go from one girl to another. And guess what? You're never going to be satisfied. You can go from this particular form of pornography to that. Why is it that it's never enough? Why is it you always going to look for something new? It's not completing. It's not fulfilling. Why is that? Why is it this powerful urge in you will never find completion in the instances of this world? Let me tell you why. The sexual urge that God has put in you is an urge to a completion that you will only find in God. This strong drive, this physical drive is a sacrament and a means with a connection in our spiritual world to have a passionate total desire for intimacy that can only be filled by God and with God. John Paul II says the spousal image of God's love has definitive prominence. Pope Benedict, the prophets described God's passion for his people using boldly erotic images. We can thus see how the Song of Songs ultimately describes God's relation to man and man's relation to God. Thus the Song of Songs became an expression of the biblical faith that man can indeed enter into union with God, his primordial aspiration. Pope Benedict again, Eros is part of God's very heart. The Almighty awaits the yes of his creatures. On the cross, God's Eros for us is made manifest. Eros is indeed that force which does not allow the lover to remain in himself, but moves him to become one with the Beloved. Is there more mad eros than that which led the Son of God to make himself one with us, even to the point of suffering as his own, the consequences of our offenses? Pope Francis, the very word used in Scripture to describe marital union, to cleave, is used to describe our union with God. My soul clings to you. A love lacking either pleasure or passion is insufficient to symbolize the union of the human heart with God. All mystics have affirmed that supernatural love and heavenly love find the symbols which they seek in marital love. The Catechism. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the Church. Already baptism is a nuptial mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist. Merton has this beautiful poem, and I only discovered it through John Michael Talbot. I don't know if you've heard John Michael Talbot's music. It's not the entertaining type, so if you're a Mumford and Sons guy or a Native Siblings or Justin Bieber, like Chad likes Justin Bieber. Um, but John Michael Talbot is beautifully uh, connected to the heart of God. And I encourage you, if you have access, in my case, I, I Google Play, spend whatever a month, and I can hear different artists. When I came back from Medjugorje, 
and just this profound sense of awareness of God's love for me and my connection to him. When I listened to John Michael Talbot's music, it very much musically resonated with the nature of my spirit and, and um, God, my, my beloved, I'm his beloved, and to experience that. And he wrote a song, a lot of them are the Psalms, which is really beautiful. He set them to music with classical guitar and sings beautifully. And one of the songs is from Merton's poem, Come My Love. And I just want to read this for you. The music song takes it to a whole new level. But Merton's words on this idea of a mystical union with God. Come my love, all through the night I lay longing, eagerly to wait for love's union, like dawn's flower awaits for the wedding with the sun, consummated in the light. Your light, my love, is stealing my heart as a secret. I'm left like a vanishing form that leaves no shadows, exposed naked, alone, between the, the heavens and the earth, lifted high on the cross with the Savior. Of course, Teresa of Avila, her description of her encounter with God and the angel that was at her side and really thrust her heart with her profound love from on high. And it was a, really an ecstatic love connection with God on high. And it's very sexual and very erotic. It's enough to make you blush. But we need to face this because I think, and Christopher West speaks about this eloquently, Puritanism is just as evil as is indulgence. That kind of, let's not talk about these terms or talk about this nature of love and talk about the sexual urge. This is God language. This is God stuff. This is the nature of our capacity to be in intimate union with God and have holy relationships with one another, holy relationships with the spouse God calls us to. Compare the Catholic value of sex versus the secular value of sex, because often as Catholics or Christians, don't we hear it? Oh, you guys, you know, so you're either so hung up on sex or you down depreciate sex and you want to minimize sex. For us, sex is not about what one does. It's an expression of who we are. It's not just part of our lives, but the totality of our lives. It's not fleeting and limited, but a participation in eternity. It's not enslaving, it's liberating. It's not just about what we get, but what we get to give. It's not individualistic and isolating, but about intimacy and communion. Love is not something we make, but someone who made us. So what's our value of sex? Evaluating all of scripture, the divine wedding feast that Scott Hahn so beautifully articulates of all of salvation history that truly Ephesians 5, we the church and that's all of us are the bride. The unveiling is happening like that Hebrew wedding feast, which was a week long, and the high point of that Hebrew wedding feast was apocalypsis, the unveiling with the veil coming back. And that's what the image that is used for the church, that we are in a, a wedding feast to be united with Christ. And Christopher says, West says, we can summarize the whole Bible in five words. God wants to marry us. So we come to sort of the conclusion, if you will, of if we have this passionate drive, this deep longing within us, so us, and we see it around us, we see it in our peers, we experience it in ourselves, we see people choose, make negative choices with that, and they certainly are powerful. They can make those decisions, or good decisions. How do we recalibrate this compass? And I think compass is a great image. The sexual urge is a compass whose due north is God, is another way to think of it. The sexual urge is a compass 
built in our very nature, whose due north is God. And using the image of a compass, what happens if you put magnets around a compass? It pulls that needle off. And even if it's just a couple degrees off, well, right now it's not a big deal, right? But you take a step, and with each step further, one day becomes a week, becomes a year, you're far away so that you may find yourself, much like my wife's very dear friends who are Catholic, who made those decisions early on, to discover that they're quite far away spiritually. They may be able to be physically united with their husbands, but the greater tragedy is that they're struggling with a spiritual intimacy, an emotional relational intimacy with their husbands because of the decisions that they made with those magnets around them. So we know that if we weren't a mess, we wouldn't need a Messiah. We need Jesus. And this is where it all comes together and it's all beautiful. We've all fallen short. We've all suffered from concupiscence. We've all made decisions, right, that have, uh, have misguided us in some ways. The, the good news, and especially in this Lenten season, is God wants to transform the way we think. He wants to transform that built-in quality for Him. So what if? What if, imagine right now, what if we had a language a witness to connect with our peers and our culture's sexual urge, that strong drive, to help them understand that it's due north is God, that he wants to have this intimate union with them. We'd be a society of saints, of course. So one way, a beginning point in this, is to connect with our peers and our friends and look in the mirror ourselves and recognize that love has a shape. Chesterton ha actually has a great uh, essay called Love Has a Shape. Love has a contour. It's not just what I feel or what I think. I didn't make love. Love made me. Love has a contour. And this was illustrated um, a number of years ago when I was communicating with a dear friend from high school. She had, in high school, been in the popular crowd, sports and, um, you know, into the sex and all of that scene and remained a good friend of mine. She's the kind of girl everybody wanted to be like. And so here's years later, and we're interacting, and you know, she had been through two divorces. Um, she had some beautiful daughters in her life, but she came to kind of an evangelical Christianity. And as we were talking, the words that came out of her mouth were, you know, I know Jesus right now. I'm glad to be in a relationship with him. And she spoke of the Catholic faith in this way. She said, you know, those laws that I got, those rules that we had in the Catholic school, she goes, none of us really followed them. She said, they were kind of stupid is what she spoke of, spoke of the Catholic Church. And so I said to her, Andrea, which of those quote-unquote laws did any of us really break that did not in fact break us? Think about it. Are we better off for being promiscuous? Are we better off for if it was drugs? Are we better off? Did they, you know, those rules, if you will, um, did, are, are we better off not having followed them? And I said to her, which of those laws or rules would you want your daughters to break? So I see the enemy gets in there and whispers to us and has us marginalize and depreciate this great gift of our church, the teaching of our church, which seeks to what? To clarify the contour of the road. Why? Because, you know, if we're going down a road and we don't see at night that there's berms or we think we can create our own road, you're going to run into that berm and you're going to have a smashed car. I don't care if you think you can create the name of that, call, rename it, define it in whatever way you want, the berm is still there. So your generation and much of mine are 30, 40 years into this experiment, and it's, there's much more in, about this, but postmodernism, deconstructionism, this whole idea that you know truth is not absolute, it's not objective, we can create it, and, um, and we're going to just fabricate it. You know, abortion, no big deal, and contraception, no big deal, and same gender, no big deal. Well, now 10, 20, 30, 40 years, people have been hitting those berms, and they really are broken, and they're looking for answers, unlike they ever were before. There's 
a hunger out there among our peers, and you can see it. When we were down at Ave Maria University, there was a levity and a joy among many of those young ladies at my daughter's campus. And then we came to Miami of Ohio, kind of making our way from the south, one of my kids to see Miami of Ohio. There was a notable difference in the spirit, if you will, of the students at Ave Maria, the joy, the levity, the light in their eyes, versus students at Uptown Miami of Ohio as you're eating there and they were getting prepared for who knows what, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and you felt it. Um, so that's number one, is articulating that road for our peers in a way that makes sense. Another really logical way, and you perhaps have heard this before, you know, the professor speaks to his students and says, you know, there's no absolutes. And the smart student raises his hand and says, are you absolutely sure about that? The liberal progressive, deconstructionist, postmodern culture assails the very premise they need. They want to make some declarations and have us recognize them as universal and honor them. They're making an assumption that there is a universal truth that we all ought to regard. So if we're going to recognize that, they're universal, that there are truths, there are propositions, why not consider the ones that make sense, that as an ear is to hearing, as eyes are to seeing, that God designed um, sexuality for a purpose. And it's not just for this world and for 5% of our time, but to order us towards God and intimacy with God. Here's another little anecdote we used when we were doing retreat work. Feel free to use it with peers. So you'd say to ladies, you know, imagine tomorrow, you don't know who you're going to get married to most likely. Maybe you're dating people. It doesn't matter. None of you know likely who you're going to get married to. You're in high school for Pete's sake. Well, let's just imagine some of the most expensive um, New York, uh, fashion industry stores come in tomorrow and they say we're gonna give away wedding dresses you can pick anyone you want for free I don't care if it's fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars what are you gonna do you're gonna bring in those closest to you you're gonna bring your mom maybe bring your friends and you have no idea who you're gonna marry and you're probably gonna have to adjust sizes let's just presume that you're gonna know your size or whatever but you're gonna pick the most beautiful dress you're gonna take your time and now let me ask you the question when you've spent time picking out that dress as you're imagining that important day of your life what are you gonna do with that dress are you gonna wear it to soccer practice you know go sliding through the mud or kicking it around are you even gonna wear it to prom any other event besides your wedding are you gonna wear that dress and there's not a single person who's going to say, oh, I'd wear it casually or in any other way. So let me clarify what you're saying here. You value this beautiful physical property. You're going to keep it safe, and you're going to reserve it for that one particular day. Now, what is more valuable, the dress or the gift of your body? I don't think anybody would doubt that logic. And so I repeat again this chapter, or this point of love has a shape, love has contour. Number two, nothing surpasses who we are. We can talk all day long to our friends and our peers and our culture, and you can all think of three, five, ten people who are struggling and in these circumstances and feel like it's reflexive and they can't get out of it, and, you know, or it's just the way it is, and you know, culture reinforces that. And, and they're, they're, quite frankly, that compass is off, and you know it, and you agonize with them, and you pray with them. So the first thing is maybe there is a conversation to talk about the shape of truth. But the second thing is... Don't be distracted yourself from living it in a compelling, joy-filled way. You know, if, if, uh, if you were a violinist, an aspiring violinist, you'd be able to see Joshua Bell, right, as an example of excellence. Or if you were an aspiring quarterback and a Green Bay Packer fan, Aaron Rodgers, all right, not so good last year at the end of the season. But point is, with every other area, you would have an aspiring person who's accomplished that excellence. Where can your peers find 
an aspiring saint, an aspiring disciple who's seeking to live it with excellence. That's the powerful image that will influence those around you. As St. Catherine of Siena said, be who God meant you to be and you will set the world on fire. And so as we look at drama, this is an image that's embedded in me because our company was involved in managing marketing for Disney's Narnia and Superman Returns and a lot of major Hollywood movies. And I looked at movies, I love movies. As I looked at books, I saw four main, movie, four main movements in every single drama I've ever encountered, whether it be book or movie. So think of your favorite movie right now. Every single movie has these four movements. You have a beginning point, the protagonist begins someplace, no brainer. Movement B is they go through a crucible. Every movie, a struggle, a crisis, a challenge. They come through movement B to movement C where they more fully discover their identity through which D, it informs their mission. It informs what they're meant to do. So beginning point, crucible, more aware of their mission, their identity, I should say, which informs their mission. Let's give some names to these movements. Life, death, resurrection, Pentecost. Embedded in human nature, whether you are Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, agnostic, atheist, these four movements are embedded in our human drama, in our human experience. And people spend billions of dollars a year to spectate these and see, oh, that's cool, I'm drawn in. Why is it that it draws us? Because it resonates with us very deeply. Well, the enemy would have us just sit on the sidelines and watch and spend money and watch other people do it and watch TV do it. Well, God wants to awaken you and me to recognize you are the starring character in an ultimate drama with millions of angels gathered around a throne watching you to see what you're going to do. And when we forgot in the garden, when we partook of the fruit, because you heard as kids as I did, you are what you eat, right? When we partake of the fruit, we suffered from amnesia. We forgot who we are. That, amnesia, that, that fruit is still being offered to us through media, through friends, through culture. And the more we partake of it spiritually, we suffer from amnesia. So into that amnesia, God looks down at you and me, and he says, they've forgotten. I need to give them an image of themselves. He sends his son. He gives us his son, to reveal our nature. Life, death, resurrection, Pentecost. And so the movements between each of these, life to death, is to be emptied. From death to resurrection is filled so that from resurrection to Pentecost we overflow. The three movements I want you to remember tonight, the heart of God's design, our ultimate drama, our purpose on this planet, to live ourselves and to help others discover this, is to be emptied of our junk, of our stuff. Apology, forgiveness, renouncing the enemy in so many forms as we see in the sacramental life of the church. A great book called Unbound, Neil Lozano. You might want to write that down. It's very powerful. It's Father Mike Scanlon's nephew who wrote this. He talks about the blessing God designed you and me to have and how often we peacefully or unpeacefully coexist with distraction and with, um, with the enemy's influence in our lives. And this is where Catholics are particularly challenged. You come to these moments like tonight or a retreat or a crucio or a chirp or whatever it may be, and we get filled with God's grace. But we speak of it as something that happened last week or last year. It's a memory. But God doesn't want it, us to be filled for a moment. He wants it to overflow as a way of life. That encounter with that intimacy that we talked about, that urge that brought you into an intimacy with God, that heightened moment in Mass, that heightened moment before the Eucharist, that heightened moment in prayer, was a little insight into the way he wants us to live all the time.
He wants it to influence our hearts and our minds and our attitudes. And when we're doing that, our friends are going to just see the glow. Their spirits are going to say, what's up with that person? They're going to experience that strength. I'm going to land this plane. My wife, Stephanie, my seven children, one of whom is in heaven, myself, and a growing number of lay people are connecting this deep longing of our hearts with discipleship, with family, with community, with wanting to share this journey of life, death, resurrection, Pentecost, empty, fill, and overflow. And this card that you have in front of you, massimpact.us, it's to download the app, but the, the whole site is there, as an invitation for groups to gather together on a weekly basis to talk and pray, to receive that grace based upon subsequent Sunday readings. Families or groups to gather together and to receive that grace. And the ideal is you light the candle, you get a candle, you light it, and in many places of the diocese there's something called Ignite. And it connects our groups or our homes in receiving that grace of God. It connects that to coming before Jesus in this powerful way of worship, this intimacy with him, certainly at Mass, but in this event called Ignite, this praise and worship Eucharistic adoration event. As this is happening, we're seeing not only spiritual and relational transformation, we're actually seeing physical healings. Like we are experiencing what God promised of his people that you will see even greater things than you saw me do because I'm going to the Father and I'm sending the Holy Spirit. If you're like me, you, you, know, you don't want to pull punches at work. You don't want to pull punches if you're playing sports. You don't want to settle for less. Why do we settle for less in our Catholic faith? God fashioned you and me to be his instruments to this world around us of his presence, which means signs and wonders. It means such intimacy with God that his grace floods through us, and it's an occasion of people coming to know their identity and living in that fully. So feel free to connect with us, reach out if any of this speaks to you and you want to uh, maybe discuss how maybe your small groups or families or homes might participate in this, but there's really a lot of neat things going on there. And the ultimate thing is just we give given this much time you're given this much time, I'm older than you guys, but you're given this much time and this much energy and this much gifts to do what it is God made you to do. So if, if, you, if you yearn to say, I want to be all in in the ways that God called me right now, know that you're not alone, that that's exactly what we're about with Image, Trinity, and Mass Impact. The question is, in the culture around us, which is very anti-God or non-God, how do you be a witness? How do you reach people? How do you make a difference? Sure. No, it's a good question. And I do think the word security is a good word because it corresponds to insecurity. And the insight that God gives us from what we shared here today and in our life is that the degree to which we're not anchored in Christ is the degree to which we are insecure. I, I don't think people will be content in their inner core being the degree to which they're experiencing insecurity. And so, even though they may try this or try that, as Chesterton said, you, you can't really break the law, you can only break yourself against the law. In their core, these people have others like them that are insecure. It's like misery loves company. Hey, I got an apple. I have anybody want an apple? It's we're all in the garden handing out apples because we've eaten of the apple. So number one is your living it joyfully and contagiously is going to be intriguing to them. Because they're going to keep trying the next thing and the next thing and the next person, the next girl, the next new idea, the next whatever. And you're going to be that Matthew 7.21, solid rock or shifting sand. They're on shifting sand. Their spirits are pining, though, for solid rock. 
And so part of the thought is how do we minimize the debris that might cause them to dismiss us? Judgmentalism, finger pointing, you know? Um, so that's number one. I think number two is, um, and I think everything flows from this, is pick one person in particular and pray to have God's heart for them. Pick your low-hanging fruit, who's just one person that you can be a disciple to that has a chance, an opportunity, and pray for them. Say, Lord, give me your heart for this person. Help me to understand what he or she are going through. Help me to experience what he or she are going through. And I'm going to challenge you and say, if each of you ought to have that person, spend every day, with just if, if, pray from the heart or pray a decade of the rosary. You know, Steve, all right, I'm going to pray for Steve. I'm going to pray for Steve. Before you even say a thing to him, pray for a divine appointment. And at some point, he's going to hear you say, Steve, I've been praying for you every day for a week, for a month, for two months. And God's going to set that up. Um, there is a, um, a document, simple one-pager, at our site. You can email me if you want, but it's called Evangelization Process. And it has sort of seven movements that are very natural. Because just as Jesus reached us, there's an interesting insight that in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's the messianic secret. What is that? They would, um, they would, Jesus would exhort people not to tell them that he was the Messiah. He wanted them to keep it secret. Why? Because they had confused ideas of who God was and the Messiah and what that meant. He wanted them to experience his person first. So if they experience your goodness, they experience your abundant interest in them, maybe even you're going to be moved as you pray for him to or her, whatever, to uh, bring them a cup of coffee. Give them, you know, something very nonchalant like that to let that one person know you're thinking about them, or whatever the case may be. Thirdly, if you had something like Ignite, and you had that low-hanging fruit, you'd invite them to an Ignite. Say, hey, I know you're going to be freaked out, but dude, listen, this culture is all about stretching. It's all about experimenting. You experiment. You like experimenting? Yeah, we experiment. I'm going to challenge you on this. Experiment. Come to this event and check it out. Don't lose your heart. Don't lose your heart. Don't lose your heart. Keep it kindred, kindled in praying and gathering around people like you. It's that simple line of the battle belongs to the Lord. You know, it's the idea that the battle does belong to the Lord. If we're doing God's work, and this is a challenge for me, if we're doing God's work, you've got to allow God to be the Savior and let the consequences belong to God. It's a gift in a weird way to strengthen you, to give you greater wisdom, to give you greater courage, like, there's a value in this, that, you know, the chat at some place with all Steubenville graduates isn't going to have. It's more painful for some people who deal with this in a Christian setting, and many do. I mean, that's suffering, where it's, or it's just mediocre, it's just blah. So we got a cross on our wall, and that's, you know, we talk God language, but where's the fire? Where's the love for Jesus? Where, where is that? Um, but don't get dragged down and know when you need to come back to your core, I mean, I would challenge everybody here, you know, this empty fill and overflow. We have three movements and we seek them in our lives. There's a hierarchy of that too. Um, number one is God. And I say this to men who are married, you know. Number one is God. Number two is your spouse. Number three are your children. And number four is the world. Think of them like hooks. You know, here's God. You know, if you're not connected to God, whatever else is below here, just if that falls off, it all falls down. So make commitment to prayer. Make commitment every day as Father... Larry says, no Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no bed. Make that commitment and be fed on the Psalms. Be fed on the truths that are contained in Scripture. And, you know, I think this is one of the greatest things. We, we're a culture that's been uh, 
we're flabby flab. If it's not spoon fed to us and somebody's not driving us there or paying for it, or if it's not, I mean, even Theology on Tap, it's awesome. I love this setting. It's one of my favorite settings. But, you know, hey, people aren't coming. Let's do it in a pub. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, and actually, I, I think, quite frankly, it's something very appropriate and logical and right about it. So I do mean that. But you get what I'm saying. So it's strengthening that resolve in you. Here's a little thought on anxiety. This little phrase came to me in prayer about three or four years ago. Anxiety, which we face with employees and face with the world and face with stuff. So I'm using that discord. You could use that word. I'll say anxiety. Anxiety is a summons to prayer. It's God's invitation to renew his dominion in our hearts. Anxiety is a summons to prayer. It's his invitation to renew his dominion in our hearts. So what is it saying? It's saying that when we experience discord and anxiety, we are not opening our souls to his dominion, which ought to be in the ideal world, like St. Lawrence being fried on one side and so peacefully says, hey, this side is done, turn me over, right? So that's the goal. God wants us to have perfect peace. He wants us to have, in fact, the readings a couple weeks ago in Matthew said, do not have anxiety like the pagans do, who worry about this. It was the whole lilies of the field and creatures of the air. You know, that's a challenge for us to say, well, I go to Mass, God, how, how could you question my Catholicity? But if we're experiencing core anxiety, it's a good challenge us to say, do I have that relationship with Jesus Christ? Have I surrendered? Have I submitted? And I'm saying, speaking to myself. So every occasion that you face of discord or challenge around you, see it also as God's hand molding you for, for trusting Him all the more. Hey everybody, I'm John Paul Schleter and one of six children, which means we're pretty busy. In fact, one weekend we had eight soccer games, four cross-country meets, and a bunch of other events. But you know what the best part of it was, besides Mass of course? setting aside time as a family to talk and pray. I want to invite you to go right now to massimpact.us. Check out the Live It Gathering Guide. It's new every week, a great way for families to talk and pray based upon Sunday readings. Your kids will grump at the idea. Expect it, but trust me, it will be the best 30 minutes you will spend in a long, long time. It will help you all experience God alive in your family relationships that make your house a home. I'm gonna make this place your home. Join us now at massimpact.us. Thanks, Mom. That was pretty awesome.